With Texas A&M having struggled to find consistency this season, a lot of people, of course, have talked about their offensive ineptitude. But what a lot of people haven't been talking about enough is how good they are on defense. It is a defense that's going to give the Gamecocks problems on Saturday if they're not careful. I'll explain why today on the Locked On Gamecocks podcast. You are Locked On Gamecocks, your daily podcast on the South Carolina Gamecocks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Today's show is brought to you by Sweatblock. If you or someone you care about or love is experiencing embarrassing sweat or odor, try Sweatblock today and save 20% with promo code LOCKED ON at sweatblock.com. Also available on Amazon. Hello, Gamecock Nation, and welcome back to the Locked On Gamecocks podcast, your show for daily headlines and potential storylines on your favorite South Carolina Gamecock sports teams. I'm your host, Andrew Lyon, and as always, thank you for making the Locked On Gamecocks podcast your first listen or watch every day. We are free and available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts daily. So let's go ahead and dive right on into Texas A&M's defense, which as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it is a stout defense for how bad Texas A&M's offense has been this season. And yeah, it's been quite atrocious to watch at times. Their defense has been the exact opposite. Texas A&M has the 21st ranked scoring defense in all of college football. They're giving up just a little below 19 points per game on average, which considering some of the teams that they've already played so far this year is quite the mark on that side of the ball. So let's go ahead and start talking about their defense and some of the overall scheme and formations that they run and some of the tendencies they have on that side of the ball. And in order to figure all that out, I went back and watched their game against Miami Hurricanes because of the fact that Miami kind of runs a similar offense to South Carolina in terms of trying to be multiple and including some pro-style-esque intricacies with their offense. So the main hammer home point that I want you all to take away about Texas A&M's defense is this is a defense that is going to challenge South Carolina because of the faith that the coaches have in their players on multiple levels of the defense, which oozes with talent. So when looking at the overall scheme and formation that Texas A&M runs, they run mainly a nickel-based defense, a 4-2-5 scheme on standard downs. And they'll run a lot of soft zone on the field side, basically where the most space is on the field and man coverage on sort of the weak side of the field. Now, if you do have guys outside both sets of numbers, Texas A&M will run soft zone coverage all across the board. Mainly a quarters coverage type look is what you typically see out of this defense. Now, Texas A&M will sometimes disguise some cover two looks where they'll just pretty much have two high safeties and then man coverage across the board with everybody else that is in front of their safeties. They do also like to run a 3-2-6 formation as well. This which was something that DJ Durkin developed over his time at Ole Miss, especially in 2021, the season in which Ole Miss's defense sort of saw a revitalization after they struggled so heavily in 2020. They'll usually run their 3-2-6 formation on some tightly aligned shotgun formations that the opposing team might run. They'll run it on some short down distance plays 
or some third and long situations or when their opponent is in or near the red zone. So basically, it depends on the situation, but they will trot out that formation from time to time to give the opposing team a different look. They also will sometimes blitz some extra defenders out of this formation from different parts of the field, whether it is the box or the boundary. And that could be a nickel blitz, a linebacker blitz, or anything else of the like, which I'll explain in further detail in just a moment. Some other situational tendencies to look at from this A&M defense. They will sometimes also bring out even a 3-1-7 formation look, which is something that is rarely seen in football. But they only bring this out when their opponent is in the red zone. So basically, it's a sub-variant of that 3-2-6 formation where they just sub out one of their linebackers for an extra defensive back because this defense relies heavily on their secondary. And on obvious third down passing situations, the Aggies will sometimes show five guys across the line of scrimmage and only bring four. The main reason for this, they're trying to cause confusion for the offensive line up front. And of course, Texas A&M does not always just send the same four guys out of that five-man front look. They will, of course, mix up which four guys they are sending, which really means that communication is vital for the opposing team between the quarterback and the offensive lineman in terms of trying to get the blocking protection worked out. Now, another thing about Texas A&M's defense, they do not blitz very often, but they do have some unique ways in which they try to vary up their pass rush patterns. They will run occasional stunt moves on their defensive line to try to make up for that lack of blitzes that are called. Stunts like a defensive end going in after a defensive tackle, a defensive tackle coming in over a nose guard, or a defensive tackle coming in over the defensive end. Again, basically, one man's crashing in a separate gap, and that secondary defender is trying to fill in the gap that has been vacated by the first defender that is referred to in those stunts. A&M will run a lot of that, and they got good reason because, as I'll get into later on in the show, they got some pretty solid athletes. They got some dudes up front on that defensive line. They will also call some crossover dog blitzes with their two linebackers out of their 4-2-5 or 3-2-6 formations in six-man blitzes, which basically means that one linebacker might be lined up on, let's say, the left side of the defensive formation, and he'll end up going across and crashing into the right side A-gap, that gap between the center and the offensive guard. His counterpart at the second level will basically just go over into the gap that the original defender was shaded over, and he'll crash into that A-gap. That is a crossover dog blitz that I am describing here. They also will run a simple Mike linebacker blitz at times, where, again, he's just simply crashing in that A-gap, just trying to bring an extra set of hands in there to try to help the front get to the quarterback. And they also will sometimes bring some disguised or obvious nickel corner blitzes, especially on obvious passing downs, such as third and long. So that is what the Aggies defense does from a scheme perspective, formation-wise, and from a tendency standpoint. Now, in just a few moments, I'm going to talk about the players that make up the Aggies defense and why the secondary for the Aggies will challenge the progression that the South Carolina wideouts and tight ends have made in perimeter blocking over the last few weeks. I'll also discuss how Haynes King's legs dictate some of the plays that are called by Jimbo Fisher on the Aggies offense. But first, I have a story to tell all of you. There was this guy named Chris, and Chris suffered from excessive underarm sweat for many years of his life. And he got to a point where it became such a problem with his dress shirts that 
He was using maxi pads in his shirt to soak up the sweat. And this was a big inconvenience in his life, as you all could maybe imagine, until he discovered Sweat Block, which changed the game for Chris. Because Chris was able to fix his problem of excessive sweating with Sweat Block, which was created by a doctor who was dealing with the same issue. And it is recommended by other doctors in the field. So if you or someone you love or care about is experiencing embarrassing sweat or odor that's getting in the way of your everyday life or their everyday life, try Sweat Block today and save 20% with the promo code Locked on at sweatblock.com, which again is also available on Amazon. Welcome back to this Wednesday edition of the Locked On Gamecocks podcast, where we cover your South Carolina Gamecocks every single day. All right, so let's talk about some of the players on the Aggies' defensive side of the ball, and let's talk about some of their play-calling tendencies from the offensive side of the ball based on what I saw in their game against the Alabama Crimson Tide. Now, starting off with their defensive execution from the Miami game. Based on this one game alone and watching this back, their best position group by far is their secondary. And basically, the list of players that I noted from that game was so long, and about three-quarters of that list was comprised of defensive backs that were making plays left and right all night long. And there's a reason why. This secondary for the Aggies... They make their presence felt in rush defense. They have quite an aggressive mentality. They are not a set of defensive backs. They're just going to sit there, sink their hips, and watch the opposing running back come screaming towards them trying to get extra yards. These guys are not coached up that way. The way these guys are coached up, if you see a hole and you see where that ball carrier is coming from, you can tell they're coming your direction. Go after him. Go get him. That's the way the Texas A&M Aggies play in the defensive secondary. They're great at recognizing the play, sort of diagnosing it as it is happening in live time and where it is coming. And the other thing is, these players are fantastic in terms of their tackling. Obviously, with the rule changes that have been made to the game of football, obviously, for the most part, really good rule changes to look after the health and safety of players. Some players these days, they have a hard time really getting down fundamental tackling. This is not one of those cases with the Texas A&M Aggies. These defensive backs, they are very good at understanding the leverage that is required in order to win a one-on-one battle in the open field. You can tell how well coached they are just based on the way they tackle. So my overall point with this talking piece is this. South Carolina's wide receivers and tight ends, if any of you do happen to listen to this podcast, you better bring your lunch pail on Saturday night against the A&M Aggies because these guys are not going to be scared. They do not play scared. They look to impose their will on the guys they're going up against for those 60 minutes in a football game. So South Carolina's perimeter blocking, as Shane Beaver has noted multiple times in the last few weeks, has gotten a lot better as this season has progressed. This is going to be one of the biggest tests that the Gamecocks have faced all season in terms of their perimeter blocking on both perimeter passes, and also outside runs. They're going to need to be ready in this one. Now, in terms of players to watch from Texas A&M's defense, the first guy that I noted was defensive lineman Isaiah Rax, or Isaiah Rags, however you pronounce the last name. But 
This guy popped off the screen multiple times throughout the Miami game in terms of the way he fought through blocks on perimeter runs or the way that he absolutely bulldozed offensive linemen back in pass rush. He is a strong physical defender who makes his presence felt on the interior of the Aggies defensive line. He's not necessarily a guy that is going to wow you with a bunch of spin moves and a bunch of swim moves. He He's not really, you know, he's, he doesn't have a bunch of sexy pass rush moves, but he's just a guy that goes out there. He works hard. He has a high motor and he gets after it on every single play. And if you aren't prepared for that, for the duration of the time you're out there on the field, Javon Gwynn and Vershawn Lee, then this guy is going to make plays. This guy will get into the backfield. He will wreak havoc, and he will affect it, whether it means he makes a tackle or he causes a run to maybe have to bounce farther to the outside. He is the Texas A&M Aggies' best lineman at this moment in time, in my eyes, in terms of how consistent he is with his play. He is a player to watch on Saturday night. I believe he wears the number 34 jersey, so look out for him if you're watching Saturday night's game. Defensive lineman Shamar Turner, number five on that defensive front, is another guy that I noted multiple times. He has a nice little rip move that he uses when he tries to shoot through a gap on some inside rush defense plays. He also can get a little bit carried away at times by inadvertently going inside too much, which ends up actually coinciding with what the offensive line's gap responsibility is. Maybe he's just trying to wash him out from where the run is going. That does happen at times, but for every time that happens, Shamar Turner is making a play on the ball carrier. He does a very good job as well in terms of CBR, which basically stands for Contain and Backside Reverse Responsibilities. When you are the weak side defensive end, which is what Shamar Turner plays for the most part in this defensive front. He's also really good in terms of how quick he shoots his hands, gets his hands latched on to the opposing offensive lineman he's going up against, and then literally just tossing the offensive lineman to the side like he is a literal rag doll, and then working his way up the field. He also has a very high motor, just like Isaiah rakes or racks, except for Quite frankly, Shamar Turner, he's probably a little bit more quicker where he has a combination of both violence and speed where Isaiah is just pretty much violent and has a high motor with everything that he does. So both of these guys are going to be a big test for South Carolina's offensive line on Saturday night, to say the least. Now, in terms of maybe some weaknesses or some players that South Carolina's offense could exploit on Saturday night, there was one thing that did stick out to me more than anything else. The second and third level defenders for Texas A&M's defense does seem to be susceptible to jet motion. They will fall for eye candy if you show it enough and you can mix in some complimentary plays on offense. And when used especially with some power run plays in the opposite direction, this is where Miami found some of the most success in their run game when they faced Texas A&M. And Plays like that could open the door for some explosive runs for Marshawn Lloyd, for Christian Beal Smith, for Juju McDowell. So any misdirection plays with jet motion or maybe the blocking scheme or maybe some of those reverses that we saw against Kentucky, Marcus Satterfield would definitely probably want to bring those back out based on what I saw 
from the Texas A&M Miami game. Now, in terms of particular players, I'm not trying to really pick on this guy, but there is one linebacker I think that South Carolina could see some success against in Edgar and Cooper, who's more of that modern-day linebacker. He's a little bit smaller, about six foot two, six three. I believe 223 pounds was what his player profile listed. He does not seem to be the best in terms of shedding blocks, and that could even include tight ends at times, which for Nate Atkins and Austin Stogner should open the door for big opportunities here in run blocking. He does have some good sideline to sideline speed when he's able to avoid and sift through blockers and get to a ball carrier or a receiver, but he also doesn't seem to be the best tackler either. It could take a while for him to bring a guy down, and it seems like more often than not, he needed a little bit of extra help when he was trying to bring a guy to the ground. So he might not be the strongest backer on the field in terms of essentially tackling guys and bringing them down to the turf and shedding blocks. So in terms of the running game for South Carolina, if you see number 45 lined up out there at linebacker, I would definitely go towards him, challenge him, try to make him have to make some open field tackles against some of these South Carolina running backs. Marshawn Lloyd could do about anything he wants against a guy like that. Christian Bill Smith is not afraid to try to run you over. Juju McDowell can probably run right on around you if he wants to. Attack, attack, attack with Edgar and Cooper at linebacker for the Aggies linebacker core. Now, in terms of the Aggies offensive formations and play calling from the Alabama game, I'll talk about this real quick because for the most part, their offense has not been very good and there hasn't been a whole lot to talk about with that side of the ball this year. They run a lot of 10 personnel with four wide receivers on the field, sometimes some 11 personnel, which means they simply have a tight end lined up in line with the offensive line. They will use a lot of motion and option in their offense. They run some inverted veer and run pass option plays, and sometimes speed option will be utilized as well, especially with Haynes King out there at quarterback. Jimbo Fisher will take advantage of the athleticism Haynes King brings to that offense. They also will use some jet and orbit motion pre-snap as eye candy for the opposing defense. They will sometimes call some quarterback power runs to take advantage of Haynes King's legs, and they will even run some counter misdirection, basically a complimentary play to work off that to get Devon Achan in open space. Basically, again, testing the linebacker's eyes, seeing if they can see through all that. So A&M is definitely going to use some misdirection, option, and motion in their own right on Saturday night on the offensive side of the ball. Now, in terms of their play calling tendencies, overall, Jimbo Fisher can be very repetitive in his play calls. It kind of seems like that he operates the same way that Marcus Satterfield has operated so far this year, which is not to say that, you know, he only looks at the play sheet and he calls five plays and that's it for the entire game. But if Jimbo feels like he's seeing some success with certain plays, or maybe there's something that was missed the first time and analysts pick it up in the booth, he's not afraid to go back to that play. He's not afraid to continuously go to his calling cards that he feels like he has in his offense. And he does seem to rely on eye candy with that orbit motion, that jet motion I talked about earlier, and basically let your athletes go out there and try to execute the plays. He will call a lot of run plays on early downs, first and second down. And he's not afraid to let Devon A. Chang carry and tote the rock, especially if momentum stalls, which is something that was very interesting that I noted from the Alabama game. If momentum was not on A&M's side at certain points in the game, Jimbo Fisher seemed to sort of rely more on the rushing attack. 
But when AM does have momentum, it seems like all of a sudden that he's more open to calling passing plays, which, again, I find that to be his way of sort of conveying some of the ego that he has as an offensive play caller. Because you know deep down, Jimbo wants to show that he still has it as a play caller and that he made the right call, making Haynes King the starting quarterback at the start of both last season and this year. Coaches like Jimbo don't get to that level without having some sort of ego. They want to be able to prove this kind of stuff. So when they have momentum, Jimbo gets a little bit of confidence in trying to showcase that. But when they don't, it seems like that, I don't want to say that he's a little more logical with his play calling, but he's willing to just let his best player on offense, which is Devon Achan, in my opinion, just try to carry the load on that side of the ball. Now, I've gone over Texas A&M's defense and offense. I want to ask all of you a question regarding a different sport of South Carolina's. I'm talking to the fans specifically. Do you think South Carolina's women's basketball team can go back-to-back, win another national title? We'll discuss that in a little bit because you might want some time to put money down on the Gamecocks to win another national title, which can feel similar to a small business owner trying to hire someone for a role in their business. Because you want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Because LinkedIn Jobs is here to make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Myself being a recent college graduate, I've been able to stay in touch and create a network with many people who are alumni of the University of South Carolina. And when you use LinkedIn Jobs, you can create a job post in minutes to reach both your own personal network and a worldwide professional network consisting of 810 million people. You can also add your job to the purple hashtag hiring frame on your profile, which helps you to find the right people that fit the job description to a T using tools like screening questions to filter through candidates and populate viable choices. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus other leading competitors in the industry because LinkedIn jobs helps you find the qualified candidates that you want to talk to at a much faster rate. Did you know Every week, nearly 40 million job seekers are visiting LinkedIn. Why wait around? Go post your job for free at linkedin.com slash college. Once again, that's linkedin.com slash college to post your job for free today. Terms and conditions do apply. Welcome back to today's edition of the Locked On Gamecocks podcast, where we cover your team every single day in just 30 minutes. The South Carolina Gamecocks women's basketball team is going to be kicking off their season soon in early November when they take on the East Tennessee State Buccaneers. I believe that game is going to be on November the 8th in Colonial Life Arena. Obviously, the South Carolina Gamecocks being led by head coach Don Staley are coming off quite the historic season from the 2021-22 calendar year. They were phenomenal last year, 35-2. and The wire-to-wire number one ranked team in the country from the beginning of the season all the way to the end. Dominant showing after dominant showing in the NCAA tournament, which was, of course, capped off by a national title win over Gino Ariema's UConn Huskies in the finals. So, obviously, at this point, the team has probably long moved on from everything that happened last year and are now gearing up to try and defend their title this coming season. Obviously, probably looking to try and go back-to-back. And... The media members clearly think that the South Carolina Gamecocks have a very good chance to do just that. As the preseason AP poll came out 
on Tuesday morning. And South Carolina was rated the number one team in the country. And they got all 30 votes as the number one ranked team, making them a unanimous selection in the AP poll. Some other notable teams that South Carolina is going to have to contend with at some point down the line, or maybe some conference foes. Stanford is ranked number two. Texas is ranked number three. Tennessee is ranked fifth. Louisville is ranked seventh. NC State is ranked 10th. North Carolina is 12th. LSU is 16. Baylor is 18. And I believe that pretty much does it. UConn is six, if I did not mention that earlier. So that is the AP poll. And when looking at the AP poll, if you're watching this on YouTube or if you've listened to the teams I have sort of thrown out there on audio podcast apps, South Carolina, in my opinion, does not have a whole lot of competition really in their tile defense this year. If there's one team I think that could potentially stand South Carolina's way, it is the Stanford Cardinals. And admittedly, the Cardinals are a team that the Gamecocks did not have to go through last year to win the national title. They're the team that infamously defeated South Carolina by just one point two years ago in the Final Four, where, of course, the Gamecocks missed those two last-second shots by Bree Beal and Aaliyah Boston to try to move on to the Final. Hopefully, of course, the Gamecocks have moved past that, but the Stanford Cardinals, albeit they did lose a couple of key players from last year's team, are still pretty stacked from a talent standpoint. Tara Vandeveer, who is a legendary coach in women's college basketball, is still coaching there. They are going to be a force to be reckoned with more than likely in March that South Carolina is going to have to keep an eye on going forward. Now, in the SEC, based on the AP poll, you could probably already guess this, but South Carolina is also getting a lot of love in terms of the conference projections. As South Carolina is projected to win the SEC title in the regular season, and the media members have them being followed up by Tennessee at number two and LSU at number three with Arkansas at four, and then rounding out the top five is Ole Miss. They also project the player of the year in the conference to be Aaliyah Boston, which again, is not really a big surprise as Aaliyah Boston earned National Player of the Year accolades from many different outlets at the conclusion of this past basketball season. In the SEC, there's probably really only two teams, maybe three teams, that could really challenge the Gamecocks in the conference. And obviously, you can never count out Tennessee. Tennessee had one of the best seasons they've had in a few years this past season. I believe they got knocked out, though, in the round of 32. So Tennessee still has a ways to go. And I do think they lost a lot of experience from their starting group. I think a couple of players did leave for the WNBA. I haven't really done a full deep dive into all those teams quite yet. So I'll have more information, of course, on that as the season gets closer. LSU, of course, is led by legendary coach Kim Mulkey, who did wonders with the Tigers this past year. Took them all the way to the NCAA tournament, which I believe they had struggled to really do in the few years preceding Kim Mulkey's arrival in Baton Rouge. So the Tigers are sure to be a potential challenger in the SEC for the South Carolina Gamecocks. And then a third one that I'll throw out there, and this one's admittedly a bit of a wild card probably for some people, is the Florida Gators. Now, if you look back at that media poll that I just showed a couple moments ago, the Gators are projected to finish sixth in the SEC by the media who voted for that particular poll. But 
I think that the Gators have a lot of promise in that program right now. I think they had an interim head coach last year that managed to lead them to a winning record, and they had multiple upsets that they pulled off in their home court. I think that Florida is on the rise in women's college basketball, and I think they're going to be a force to reckon with a few years down the line. Again, I wish I could talk a little bit more in depth about the team, but I promise y'all I'm going to do some research on these teams so that I'll be a little bit more in depth with this discussion this next time. But the point being with all the teams I just mentioned from both the AP poll side of things and the SEC side of things, there's not a whole lot of challenges, in my opinion, that South Carolina has got to deal with or has to really worry about in terms of them trying to go back and win another national title. Again, from a national perspective, if I had to pick one team, it would definitely be the Stanford Cardinals. It would not shock me if maybe based on the way the bracket plays out in March, if there's a potential rematch between South Carolina and Stanford, either at least in the Final Four, or who knows, maybe even in the National Championship game. And again, the SEC, if I had to maybe pick one team out of the three teams I mentioned just a little bit ago, I probably would pick LSU. Kim Mulkey did a great job over there this past season in her first year, taking them to the NCAA tournament. I do think they got upset in the first round, so, really and truthfully, I think that the biggest worry for South Carolina in terms of LSU is if they happen to meet up with them in the SEC Women's Tournament, I think that that could be an issue for them. Because obviously with the tournament, you're playing a lot of teams in such a short amount of time. So, they could serve as a roadblock in that aspect. Or, who knows, maybe just based on purely familiarity, they could be an issue for you in March in the NCAA tournament. So that's where I could see LSU being a roadblock for the Gamecocks. Tennessee and Florida, again, I think they could be challengers. I think they could be tough outs in the regular season, but I just don't really see a whole lot of opposition to South Carolina or that South Carolina is going to have to really deal with in terms of at least trying to get back to the national title game in order to try to win their third national title in program history. What are y'all's thoughts on Texas A&M's defense, the play calling that they have on that side of the ball? Some of the players that I mentioned, what about Haynes King and Texas A&M's offense, at least what they try to do with his athleticism? Would you be worried about that if the Texas A&M Aggies play Haynes King at quarterback on Saturday night? And also, for all of you who follow South Carolina's women's basketball program closely, how do you feel about the team heading into this year? Do you think they're bound to win their second straight national title this upcoming season. I want to hear all of y'all's thoughts, as always, down below in the comments section if you're watching today's show on YouTube. And, of course, if you're listening to today's show on an audio podcast app, wherever you listen to your podcast daily, you can also feel free to shoot me a message at a line underscore SC on Twitter. I'll be sure to respond to any replies or comments that you have for me as quickly as I see them. And also, if you've enjoyed the Locked On Gamecocks podcast and you want to get more news on the entire SEC conference, be sure to make Locked On SEC your second listen every day. Host Chris Gordy and the local experts of Locked On take you across the entire SEC in just 30 minutes. Yes, in just 30 minutes. So make Locked On SEC your second listen after, of course, the Locked On Gamecocks podcast. But once again, y'all, that does it for me on today's show. I hope that you all have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll catch y'all on the next show of the Locked On Gamecocks podcast.